the UK Psych Health and Safety and ISO 45003 podcast. The goal of the UK Psych Health and Safety podcast is to be your source of information on psychological injury prevention, health promotion and best practice. In doing this, we aim to rapidly advance the global practice of psychological health and safety in workplaces and adoption of best practices from the ISO 45003 standard. We will be looking at fully integrated approaches to managing psych health and safety and well-being strategy in the workplace that meet the needs of everyone in the organisation. Your regular host will be Peter Kelly, Senior Psychologist with the UK Health and Safety Executive and Sheila Lord of BMR Health and Wellbeing. Every week we will have a guest episode from the fields of health and safety, human resources, psychology and academia who are leading the way in their corner of the globe. Hi and welcome to the latest episode of the UK Psych Health and Safety podcast. I'm Sheila Lord and I'm joined today uh, by my co-host Peter Kelly Um, and this week um, talking to us is Christian Van Stolk. Uh, Now Christian is the Executive Vice President at RAND Europe and he's worked extensively on health and well-being in the workplace. Um, So in the past he's focused on improving the health and well-being of staff in the National Health Service um, and also looking at building an evidence base for health interventions in workplace settings, uh, looking at the relationship between productivity and health and well-being outcomes. He's also advised large private sector employers government, European institutions, and the World Bank over the years. Um, So a lot of experience there. So it's going to be a great conversation um, today with Christian. Um, And he's also um, managing Rand's work on the Britain's Healthiest Workplace um, data um, in conjunction with Vitality. I think I've got that right. So Christian, welcome to the show. Quite an impressive resume we have there. Well, you made me sound a lot better than I am, in fact, Sheila, but it's, it's, it's great to be with you. Fantastic, fantastic. So today we're going to be talking about well-being in organisations, of course, but specifically, I wanted to start having a chat with you really around the stuff that you've done and the work that you've done around the NHS and, and very large organisations, um, because we know that, you know, well-being is a, is a tricky topic, and I think sometimes, you know, trying to get change around well-being in these big organizations can be quite tricky. Yes, that's absolutely correct. And, um, you know, obviously there's sometimes a cultural dimension to this. Um, Leadership comes into play um, in terms of setting the tone uh, from the top in terms of what the organization is trying to achieve. Um, That then filters down to line managers. And we know line managers are really important in in this equation. Um, But, you know, Producing this, this type of change uh, within large organizations, um, you know, also has, is, is, is quite multifaceted in a way. Um, what we found over the years is really that um, large employers um, offer quite a lot to their employees in terms of health and well-being. They sometimes have quite extensive programs. Um, it's quite interesting to see that often these programs are not very well promoted uh, within organizations. Um, that means that there's very low awareness among staff of these programs, um, which then leads into very low participation rates. Um, and these participation rates tend to be the lowest uh, among at-risk groups, uh, which is also an issue. So um, there often tends to be better awareness uh, of these programs amongst the worried well, 
and also those on high incomes and um, you know relatively higher incomes in, in these large employers because they often have quite a diverse workforce. Um, that then also means that, um, uh, and there's also an additional dimension here, I should add that sometimes large employers also target their programs uh, to those on higher incomes anyway. And we know that people on higher incomes tend to have better health and well-being to begin with. So there, there's all kinds of different challenges there uh, in terms of, um, of uh, not only in terms of setting the tone from the top, in terms of coming up with coherent uh, programs in large employers, but then also how you promote these programs, how you target these programs, and, and, and really how you make them relevant uh, to a large group of employees. Yeah, and I think, you, you know, you're absolutely right there. You know, it, it does get lost. And I think what we end up with is a lot of money being invested into these programs that are not yielding any returns. So, you know, how do we get these organizations to improve that? Um, you know, we, I talk a lot to clients and, and when we're talking to large organizations is that a lot of well-being initiatives or strategies or programs are quite generic. They're quite overarching. Um, and that doesn't necessarily always cascade down. And, you know, well-being in different organisations means different things to different departments, to different job roles. So unless we're doing that in a systemic way and building that into everyday process, if you will, um, and making it, I would say, almost like, you know, you say you walk into an organisation, you say, who's responsible for quality? And they go, we all are. Who's responsible for customer satisfaction? We all are. Who's responsible for health and well-being? Mm, HR, my line manager, not quite sure, but it's not me. We need to yes, I, I, I think that is right in, in a way. Um, and, 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 and I think the way that you make it relevant uh, within large organizations is, um, first of all, the, the key thing is to make the business case, right? Um, to show the link between better health and well-being amongst uh, employees and actually business outcomes. And we know that there are such direct links. Um, and, um, you know, for instance, you, you start talking about the National Health Service. We know that um, those uh, NHS health organizations with better health and well-being also have better outcomes. You know, there is an association there. So that is some, it's, it's very measurable. It can be patient satisfaction. It can be um, um, hospital-acquired infections. Uh, it can be uh, mortality risk within healthcare settings and so on. All, all of these are very important outcomes in a way. Um, but, um, but also uh, directly measurable things such as, as absenteeism, for instance, you know, when people are not at work um, because they're in ill health and where we can measure this presenteeism, which is a, which is a more difficult concept. But this is, of course, um, individuals being at work, but in suboptimal health, which is a particular issue in the health service because um, there tends to be a lot of um, uh, loyalty among staff uh, to come in, uh, a big team spirit. So people tend to come in when they're not well. Um, so uh, when, when you can measure all of these things, it actually shows a very strong relationship. So at, at its most basic, um, basically there's a, there's a shared value proposition here between employers, employees, and society. So for instance, if you improve health and well-being in workplace settings, um, you get bis better business outcomes, which is good for employers. Uh, you get healthier individuals, uh, which is good for society, and you also get people who, um, you know, have better well-being, which is, of course, great for individuals in terms of their overall, overall levels of happiness, for instance. So, um, so this should work um, uh, well together. Uh, somehow, making that business case still remains a challenge. 
Yeah, so you talk you talk though about measuring, and we, we've had um, Louise Aston on um, in the past, and again, what you know, one of the one of the phrases um, from Louise was, "What gets measured, gets managed," and I think that there's a there's a real kind of resistance to open the lid on Pandora's box. I hear a lot of the time about measuring this and actually understanding what well being. Um, data looks like in your particular organisation. Um, you, you've uncovered some of this data in the British, Britain's Healthiest Workplace um, surveys. Give us some of, the, um, some of the key findings from that, would you, Christian? Yeah, so, so, so you start really with outcome measures. That's, um, as you mentioned, you know, you know what's, what gets measured gets done to some extent. You know? So we focus a lot on, on absenteeism and presenteeism. So these are the two concepts that I introduced earlier. And um, if you add those two together, then you get sort of health-related productivity loss. And uh, what you see over time uh, is a, a very significant deterioration of those two numbers in large employers. Now, we don't survey... Um, uh, uh, the same group of employers every year. So there are some, and this is not a cohort that we track over multiple years, but nonetheless, these are very similar large employers uh, covering a wide range of sectors. So you, you do get a sense that, um, you know, that, that these numbers represent a trend. Um, and so what you see is, for instance, that about 7.5% uh, of productive time was being lost when we first started measuring this in 2014, up until about 14.25% of product productive time being lost uh, in the latest me measurement pre-COVID. Uh, we're measuring again this year. I don't have the results yet, but my anticipation is that it will be um, higher again. Now, if you put that in perspective, 14.25% uh, of working days lost per worker, um, per employer that we survey is a, is a very substantial number. We get into the 30s, a 30-day 30 mar uh, mark in terms of productive time loss. Um, now, this seems like, um, uh, you know, sort of a, a bad news story in some ways, in the sense that you um, that that this trend, um, you know, seems to be deteriorating over time. And then there's a, a real question about what is driving this trend. Um, and uh, the majority of this sits with with usual suspects in terms of drivers, um, mental health. We, we see, um, you know, you know, mental health deteriorating in the same way uh, across that uh, across those years. Um, so workers struggling more with their mental health, um, more workers being at risk of clinical depression, for instance. Um, we see uh, issues around related um, sort of drivers, such as financial well-being, sleep um, remains a challenge within the UK workplace. And also some, um, some, some uh, another usual suspect that we talk about a lot, and that's uh, bad uh, musculoskeletal health. Uh, and of course, uh, as you can imagine, these two things are uh, quite closely related. So there's often comorbidities between those. Um, so these are some negative trends um, that, we, uh, that we see. And ultimately, this is a challenge in terms of workplaces having to measure uh, and manage, sorry, these, um, these, uh, these, these outcomes and these drivers to some extent. Oh, sorry. I think Peter wants to come in with a question there. Yeah, I think it's more like, it's a general observation, I think. The, there's a study out from Dyke Drummond, who's from the US, um, they're looking at 55% people leaving the profession, clinical clinicians leaving due to stress and mental health. Um, and we're seeing similar numbers, we're seeing quite large movements over in the UK as well. So it's just sort of confirming what was there, but it, we are really in the midst of a crisis in terms of how we manage our healthcare workers. Yeah, uh, I, I think so, uh, Peter. And 
And, and what I always tell um, executives within large employers is that um, ultimately what, what you're trying to do is perhaps plateau some of these trends. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, we need to significantly improve health and well-being. And of course, I, I would second that. But in some ways, um, you know, uh, if, you, if you're faced with such negative trends, um, uh, such as in mental health and, and overall productivity loss, perhaps what you're trying to do is plateau some of those negative trends out and you say, well, look, we got an aging population. We got some real structural issues in the labor market at the moment. Um, uh, we have people leaving the workforce in, in large numbers. Two percent of our um, of our labor force hasn't returned, despite what the prime minister says, hasn't returned. Um, um, you know, uh, post COVID. Um, so maybe you're trying to plateau some of these things out and and actually trying to make them more manageable. In other large employers that, for instance, have private health insurance, uh, which um, which uh, you know uh, some of them have. Um, they're trying to um, obviously manage these uh, healthcare costs together with their private health insurance, for instance, in, in terms of leveling some of these things out. So, um, so, so that seems to be a, a challenge. Uh, so there's an education piece for sure here with large employers, uh, but it's also, it, it's, it's, it's really important, I guess, Sheila, coming back to your point, and maybe the, the Louise Ashton uh, challenge, is also what are you shooting at here? You know, what, what are your objectives? What are your aims? Absolutely. So in terms of what, you know, these organisations, give us some examples of what you've seen as good practice of, of being done in some of these uh, larger organisations that maybe um, other, you know, businesses can learn from. Yeah, I mean, it's um, so, so what's what's really interesting is that um, I'll, I'll use the um, NHS now as a bit of a, a lab for instance. And what you see, for instance, in many health organizations in the NHS is that you see very similar offers that are being made to employees consisting of uh, very similar programs, consisting of very similar interventions across the piece. And so that's not really where the challenge is. The challenge is really how you get individuals to engage with that and also how you embed this in wider organizational culture. That is, those are, the, those are two really fundamental challenges. And you see, for instance, um, organizations that um, uh, report on health and well-being in their organizations, um, and that's across the board, not, not just NHS, uh, where, where there's active reporting on that. So internally and externally, um, they have much higher participation rates in the health and well-being programs, and as such, also better outcomes, uh, which is interesting, because there is some good evidence to suggest that that's, um, health and well-being programs in and by themselves can, can make a difference. Um, so that, that, is, that is one part of the um, uh, equation uh, to some extent. Um, so the, the, the key challenge is, is that, that, that I always find is that um, if you have, um, if, if you're driving these kind of health and well-being programs, as you point out, Sheila, if you're investing quite a significant amount of money into them, then you really have to drive participation awareness and, from those at-risk groups. And then and what drives that awareness and at-risk groups? And it's really uh, leadership taking, um, take, seeing this as a really important outcome for them to, uh, to engage with, filtering that down to the line managers and really embedding it in, in organizational culture. If this just sits in an HR department, if it just sits um, with, um, uh, with an occupational health team, it's just not gonna work. Uh, it, the finance director suddenly said, and that's always the challenge I put everybody, the finance director takes this serious, um, uh, all of a sudden change starts happening. Absolutely. And, you know, that comes back uh, to another point which we've raised on this podcast before. And, you know, we talk about health and safety and we talk about health and well-being. Yet we, we when it comes to kind of applying 
process, we have process in, in, in place to manage risk around physical safety. Uh, we have the infrastructure in these big organizations. We have these management systems. Uh, we have the people with the right skill sets. Yet when it comes to the health part and health and well-being, we completely bypass that because we, as potentially as individuals or as organizations, feel that we don't have the skill sets to deal with people's mental health. And for me, I think sometimes that the way that we think about health and well-being in the workplace needs to change. And we need to take more of this kind of, you know, the same approach that we do with safety and just applying it to the different, if you would, hazards that exist around what are the factors in work, like high workloads, like low levels of control, like relationships and support. What are those factors that are contributing to people's well-being in a negative way? And changing those factors and shifting that, shifting that view on health and well-being away from the individual and the individual's mental health, and looking more at the organisational factors. Yes, I think that's right. And also, there is um, something I, th I think also fundamental about this is that it's um, intrinsically hard to measure, right? Um, you know, psychological safety or psychosocial factors within the workplace. Um, so what's what's quite visible is are, for instance, accidents, as you described, Sheila. What's quite visible is when people are not at work. So many employers spend a huge amount of time um, doing absence management. What I always tell large employers is that that's fine. And of course, um, absence is an issue, um, but you're missing out probably on 98% of your population by doing that. So you, you're, you're focusing um, on, on what's ultimately quite a, a, a small proportion of health-related productivity loss. Presenteeism, we know, is a much larger challenge uh, in, in the workplace. Some studies estimated as being five to six times more significant than abs absence, for instance. Um, so I think you're right about that culture and also having those processes, because ultimately that culture and process will also lead um, to better outcomes for the 98%, as I would call it. Um, the one word of caution I would have here is that um, the, the type of actions and the type of processes you might want to have for psychosocial safety, and, and, and Peter might know this quite well, might be slightly different to the processes you, you have for you know, doing successful absence management. So, on. so it does require uh, some thought uh, in terms of uh, how to do this well and, and, and the type of interventions that you uh, put in place. And I would also ar argue here very strongly I often get asked is, is there a silver bullet thing that we can do within an organization? Is it mental health first aid? Is it this and so on? Um, I can tell all the listeners here now is that there is no such thing as a silver bullet. So it's, 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 it's more about the overall approach. Um, and, and, and that still remains a challenge because, uh, you know, people like to have the shortcuts in some ways, right? Absolutely. I think, you know, you've hit on a really um, valid point there, and we get this a lot. We get this a hell of a lot, and, and people putting in things like mental health first aiders and um, things that they can say, I've, I've done something. I can tick a mark in a box that says I've done something. But actually, what have you done besides spend some money to train some mental health first aiders? That's what you've done. And, and kind of going back to that silver bullet solution, employees know and understand when there is a tick box exercise going on and when there's a real cultural commitment from leadership that says we care about you um, and it's one of the things that you know we do as an organization you know we try to keep it really really simple 
uh, my background um, for my sins before I came into the health and wellbeing space, I worked in um, operations. So uh, I come very much from a continuous improvement background. So very much about data, very much about being able to measure things. Um, and, you know, what was the status before? What was the status after? Um, and I just find that, you know, organizations are still looking for quick fixes that don't exist. And this needs to be as important, if there was as, as, as quality, as important as customer satisfaction, if you don't have that employee satisfaction, those other things, as you've alluded to before, you know, around productivity, they will suffer. Yes, I, I agree. And, um, and also, I think having realistic expectations about what you can achieve in this space. And um, so um, I, I've run up against all kinds of unrealistic expectations, uh, Sheila, quite frankly, uh, um, mostly um, involving Secretary of State and saying, like, we need to have sickness absence in the NHS and so on. And or the NHS needs to become the best employer, best large employer in the UK. And my answer always is that the NHS has some very particular challenges, and, and I won't go into all of those today, but um, maybe the NHS should try to become, you know, the, you know an average uh, large employer in the space of health and well-being, you know. Um, and, 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 and so uh, I think the, what we need to learn here, um, really, and what we need to have more information on, and fortunately, we, we've done some of that case study work together with our colleagues at the University of East Anglia as part of a a large research grant from the ESRC, uh, have more case studies on what improvement journeys look like and what's realistic to achieve within these kind of settings. Um, because that then gets you to the measurement piece, right? This is what I can achieve in this space. And, uh, and I think that leads to healthier conversations, um, you, know, uh, you, you, know, you know, stretching the metaphor a bit. Mm, absolutely. And I think, yeah, absolutely. I think Peter wants to come in with a question. Yeah, it's just um, a sort of reflection on the fact that um, when you think about the NHS and you think about healthcare sectors amongst others, I mean, if, if we, purely the sickness absence itself should be a driver, but more so than that, it's about improving people's healthcare. And you can do that by having engaged staff and people that are healthy. And I'd be, and it's interesting that we have well-being programs for the general public, but only recently have we seen post-COVID, some NHS trusts doing well-being initiatives with their own staff, you know, and actually, so do you have any, any comment on that, Chris? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's a topic dear to my heart. My, my, my wife is an NHS hospital consultant, so I mean, I, I feel like I'm a stakeholder there, but um, um, obviously, um, Peter, the point you make is absolutely true. Um, healthier um, um, healthcare workers um, produce better healthcare and that leads to a healthier population. It's not entirely true that um, NHS trusts and NHS organizations weren't doing very much about um, well-being um, before uh, the pandemic, but it's true that they did a lot more during the pandemic. And, and there's also an aspect about the sustainability of some of those initiatives uh, post-COVID, which is problematic, because if you're engaging differently with your um, NHS colleagues and with your NHS staff, um, and you all of a sudden say that well-being is very important, and then you start taking some of those resources away, it becomes a bit of a, an, an awkward discussion. And, and possibly these resources are more needed uh, post-COVID because many of the uh, our health workers have had quite traumatic experiences during, um, during, uh, during the pandemic and, and continuing so as they catch up. In fact, Neil Greenberg at uh, King's College London talks a lot about the traumatic experiences that um, healthcare workers have had. 
and, and, and I can certainly second some of that. But in some case, uh, in some ways, I guess um, um, the, um, uh, you know, there's a universal truth here, uh, Peter, beyond the NHS. And there's some really good evidence to suggest that um, healthier employees more broadly uh, are more engaged and as such are more uh, committed to organizations in terms of actually producing better business outcomes. So I've done a lot of work in call centers and there's a really direct correlation between uh, net promoter scores. This is something that's used quite a lot in the customer service area. Uh, and for instance, the um, underlying health uh, and well-being of, uh, of employees. It's also interesting because we can look at some of the data longitudinally. If, if once people improve their health and well-being over time, we actually see a difference also in the net promoter scores over time. So some of these relationships hold, um, not just um, that people are, who are in better health um, do better in the workplace, but also people who are improving their health seems to also, also that seems to relate to some changes in business outcomes for the better as well. So, so this, this to me seems like a, a, a no brainer, but it's, it's still that point that we keep getting back to and Sheila, I think raised in initially in the sense is how can we, do we make that business case and how, how do we you know, get organizations to, uh, to invest in this in a sustained manner? I think that is, that is, that is still a challenge. Yeah, this definitely needs to be kind of an organisational approach that's led from leadership, as you say, getting all of that buy-in. And, and I think, as you said before, Christian, there's this expectation that we want an immediate result. We want to be able to see something straight away. But, you know, we don't expect that with quality of products and services. I'll bring it back to that again. You know, we've, we've got a programme of continuous improvement. We're not just going to drop something in and it fixes something overnight. We will have some short-term wins we will have some medium-term wins and then we'll have some long-term strategies. And I just don't think that a lot of organisations think that through very well. What is it that we're trying to achieve? What is it that we're trying to, to understand? What is it that we want to do? And I think this is worth you know, having now um, these frameworks in place. I don't know how familiar you are with um, the ISO 45003, uh, which is a soft a topic that Peter and I obviously very, very close to our hearts on. Um, but having these frameworks now that have been pulled together enable organisations to really bring those into the business um, and have a strategy around wellbeing in a way that's familiar to a lot of business practice. What are your thoughts on, on things like the ISO standard in helping to, to take this forward um, in a way that businesses can operationalise, if you will? Yeah, I, I think the challenge is, is that, um, you, you, you know, you pointed the challenges uh, quite well there, um, uh, Sheila. I think the challenges, of course, is that some of the improvements that we would see in this space take a bit longer to run through um, an organization. Um, sometimes also you, you can make things worse. For instance, if you uh, increase awareness around mental health, hey presto, you might see actually more people coming forward with mental health issues. This can be really uncomfortable for an organization to deal with. I had one organization where they rolled out a big program in terms of providing psychological support to employees, and they were overwhelmed with people wanting to take up this offer. And, 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 um, and to such an extent that they decided to ration the service, which I think was exactly the opposite of what they should have done. But, but, but what I'm trying to say is that um, uh, humans are quite complicated in many ways. They're quite simple in other ways as well. In some ways, if we sleep enough, we have breakfast and we have regular breaks, we do better, right? 
um, but uh, we're also quite complicated. And some of the, um, the changes you might want to make in terms of health and well-being or improvements you want to make to health and well-being, they might either reverse uh, a negative trend, as I mentioned, in terms of mental health. There is a wider pressure in society that we need to, deal, to think about. Uh, they may they may take some long uh, some time longer to filter through the system. For instance, if you change, uh, if you have a physical activity program, you know I might only see health benefits in a, in a number of years, right? Uh, related to that. Um, so so I think um, it, it's it's about uh, educating also about um, the um, you know what what what's sort of the process of improvement is within an organization, what is feasible within organizations, um, you know um, you know and you know, sort of explaining why this is a, a good longer term investment uh, for an organization to make. And just coming back to the point that you make about frameworks, I think they're really quite important in a sense as structuring tools. And, and I, you know, I don't want to necessarily comment about specific frameworks and ISO standard from my point of view is fine, but I think it, it allows organizations to start structuring their thinking about what they might want to achieve uh, in this space in terms of the processes, practices they want to put in place in terms of some of the outcomes that they might want to focus in on. Um, the uh, ISO um, uh, standards, at least from my organizational perspective, and I'm reflecting as an executive in my, in my organization, whether they relate to IT, whether they relate to, um, to HR or other factors, they become uh, you know, quite a, a focus for an executive team. So everybody sort of uh, you know, groups together around that, which is helpful. So it doesn't just sit in a silo within an organization. It sort of cuts across more. I think all of that is um, helpful uh, in and by itself. And I've also seen examples of where frameworks were used other than the ISO standard or accreditation schemes were used that actually had, a, had quite a positive impact. So I'm all for these kind of structuring tools as an entry point for organizations or as a structuring tool for organizations um, because it's, it, you, know, you start having dialogues that, are, um, that, that tend to be a bit more holistic um, across an organization. I mean, I, I think... You know, as, as we've talked previously on a number of different podcasts, um, the very unusual change program that we went through with um, COVID, which is effectively what we did do, we went through the most unplanned change in work and how work's done, um, I think has shown up some of the benefits of, you know, being able to act quickly, but also some of the weaknesses where we, we didn't necessarily respond in the way we should have done. How did you find that, Chris, in the NHS, or well, in healthcare in, in general? Um, so, um, so, so I think I think there were um, a couple of different observations here. I think in the sense is that um, uh, what you saw, for instance, in the NHS was a huge amount of solidarity among staff. Um, you know, and and that solidarity solidarity carried us us through quite significantly uh, through the pandemic. Uh, you saw that engagement levels and satisfaction levels were broadly stable during the, during the pandemic. Uh, if, if anything, maybe slightly better. Uh, we've kind of dropped off a cliff right now uh, post, uh, in the post-pandemic world. So it seems to me that that sort of uh, sustained effort um, um, you know, was quite difficult for the health service. And we're now in a new reality. Um, so I think the, the health service is more a story about post-pandemic rather than the pandemic itself, which is quite interesting. Uh, in other large employers, uh, what we've seen is that uh, changing routines of individuals by getting them to work from home was very disruptive, um, much more disruptive than we might have thought in terms of productivity loss. And, 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 and it probably overall, although the numbers still need to be crunched completely, 
had a had a relatively um, um, a negative impact on their health and well-being. Uh, the only group that did re reasonably well uh, during the pandemic, um, and, and there were particular issues around young people, disabled, uh, minorities, and so on, uh, with, there are some real is issues there for us as a society to look at. The only group that did really well um, are those people who actually had, um, were working from home uh, pre-pandemic. They actually didn't see much of a change to their routines. In fact, they were probably better integrated in the workplace than ever before um, because they were not seen as a sort of an outcast group. Uh, and, um, and they were already used to this routine. Uh, the question then is what happens again? Um, when does a routine become uh, part of the new normal? Um, now that we're doing hybrid working, how does that sort of impact all of this? And of course, we also have to acknowledge the fact that there were a very substantial number of workers that didn't have a significant change to their routines. I'm thinking about people working in supermarkets, people working in food, people working in processing factories and so on. And they had, um, they had uh, other issues that they had to deal with, namely uh, very significant outbreaks of COVID in those uh, workplaces at times. Um, and uh, that, that, that was a particular challenge, of course, in those workplaces. And we should underestimate that because um, um, long COVID um, will be with us for uh, quite a significant time. And, and, and many of those individuals um, you know, were at higher risk of that, for instance, uh, to begin with. Um, so I think different challenges in different uh, sectors of the economy. Um, the, you know, the NHS is a very particular post-pandemic issue at the moment. Changing routines of, 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 of humans is quite an interesting one. I, um, I'm very much uh, you know, a circadian rhythm person, very much as uh, you know, that humans sort of love the routine, they love sort of the uh, natural rhythms and so on. And um, coming back to the original challenge around good work, is often uh, our workplaces try to disrupt those, those rhythms, those routines and so on. And it, it tends not to have particularly positive uh, outcomes. So, um, so that is, um, that, those are some observations, some general observations. Really, really interesting observations there, Christian. So what, what do you think, you know, Peter, Peter said, you know, obviously the pandemic really accelerated um, health and well-being, workplace well-being and good work. Um, in a way that, you know, probably, I don't know, 10, 15 years, um, it fast forwarded us in terms of having to adapt and be more flexible. What do you see um, kind of positively looking forward? Are the opportunities now post pandemic for employers and employees in terms of this, keeping this momentum and creating good work? I think the most significant difference is that I think the relationship between employer and employee has changed. Um, and I think the employee has a lot more agency um, um, you know, in, in that relationship. And I, I welcome that quite frankly. Um, and I think it leads to a different set of uh, a dialogue, a different set of conversations and different dialogue, I think between employee and em employers. Um, I, I would like to see a lot more co-production between employees and, and employers about uh, you know, how to improve uh, health and well-being within an organization. And ultimately, that co-production is really important. I think, Sheila, you made the point is that different types of workers, different types of workplaces might have different needs. Um, I find that often large employers are not really aware who they employ. So they, um, they, uh, they sometimes forget about the call center up in Stockton. They forget about the back office in Bournemouth. Um, you know, they forget about different places. They focus a lot on, you know, maybe the front office staff, perhaps, or, you know, so it, it, they, they, they tend to be more focused on, on, on employees on higher incomes compared to those on lower incomes. Um, so I think if you can have this co-production, I think it can be really, really fruitful. 
um, and uh, in terms of tailoring some of the programs, making them more relevant, making sure that this is really important to line managers as well. I think that's the key in some ways. I think line managers can be huge facilitators of health and well-being in the workplace, but also huge hurdles, as we know. Um, the, um, the fact also is that we need to you know, ensure that our leaders in the organizations are in good health and well-being. There's actually a correlation between, you know, line managers and senior executives having poor health and well-being and, uh, and, and, and employees, their employees, so that our reports. Um, so, so I think, I think we need to think in, in this differently. I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity, but I've seen many huge opportunities in the past year. And I don't want to be pessimistic because, uh, you know, I don't think that's the purpose of this uh, podcast, but I've seen many good crises being wasted. And, um, and so I think this is a really good crisis to exploit from a health and well-being point of view. And ultimately, if we exploit it well, then I think it will have lasting effects and, and a huge impact on our society. I also am aware that sometimes these effects tend to be transient. So it's really how we embrace this. And whether we're still looking at all the challenges we have around the cost of living, whether we really sort of move on to the next crisis or, or, or really you know, sort of uh, you know, work together um, employers and employees to actually make a change. I think, I, I mean, I agree with you, Chris. I think the other thing is, I think we have a unique opportunity to change the, completely the narrative for work. And if we don't do it now, after this, then we'll be back to 1918. In terms of, we had an opportunity, you know, these global pandemics don't come along very often. They, and it's, it's once in a hundred year events. Um, but um, one of the reasons I think if you look at obviously all of the processes and systems we had in place, we were able to come in in early and start to reduce people's, you know, it helped people to deal with the mental health aspect of the pandemic. But going part, going forward, I think unless we, sorry, unless we change the narrative for work now to look at putting people first, I think we, as you just said there, I think we'll end up wasting and finding ourselves going backwards instead of forwards. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Peter, uh, on that point. And um, you know, I, 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 that, I mean, I wrote a piece, I think, um, on on our, our own blog about you know that that that's that that that's has to be the good thing to come out of this uh, crisis. Um, I'm 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 always a bit you know having been I, I don't go far as far back as 1918 myself, but um, having been through a few crises myself, I think this is the pandemic is a bit un, unrivaled. Um, uh, I'm I'm always aware that we can waste a crisis uh, as, as well. And I think thinking also about pandemic preparedness uh, going forward, um, you know, I'm not saying that we will have uh, a COVID-19 crisis um, regularly, but we certainly have outbreaks of some sort uh, more regularly as, as, as uh, the, the climate heats up, as we encroach more on nature and so on in, in particular parts of the world. world. What really also struck me is that we were not particularly, um, uh, you know, in particularly good health uh, before the crisis started, um, as, as as a as a sort of a society, um, and 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 so, I think there was also some real lessons from for employers there in terms actually, you know, we might have underinvested a little bit in this. We might have, you know, sort of, we we could have done a little bit more, and that might have actually set us up better going forward as well. So hopefully we can bring all of that together. Uh, and I think that requires, um, you know, a, a public-private partnership. Uh, quite frankly, um, and and hopefully we can, uh, you know, hopefully that we can put that in place. 
Fantastic, fantastic, Christian. So we're gonna we're kind of coming towards the end of um, our episode. We we try to stay around um, forty minutes. But what I would like to ask you to just um, in terms of wrapping up, Christian, is what would be that key piece of advice that you would give um, to business leaders um, with regards to the the kind of value of of health and wellbeing to their business. Well, I, I think um, from my perspective is that most investments in health and well-being uh, in your staff will pay off. Uh, it's as simple as that. Uh, you, will, you will see an uh, improvement in terms of your productivity and also in terms of your business outcomes. But you only will have that um, if, you, um, if, if you live health and well-being within your organization, if you embed it in your culture. And I think those are the, those are the lessons that I've learned, sometimes the hard way uh, over time, but that would be my advice. Uh, to those people running um, running the organizations. Fantastic. That's that's fantastic, Christian. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Really enjoyed chatting with you. Well, it was great to be with you. You've been listening to the UK Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention and the new ISO 45003 standard, follow subscribe to the UK Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.ukpsychhealthandsafety.com